This podcast was recorded on May 13th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. So welcome to the Sherman Show. Here we are on May 13th, 2020 at uh, 7 in the morning Pacific uh, Standard Time. I'm here with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And uh, we are representing on day, uh, I think it's 53 or 54 of the lockdown uh, here in California, which uh, looks like it could be in L.A. County uh, extended for another few months at this stage. So too early to tell. But Sam, uh, in this uh, post uh, or this pandemic uh, laced world, uh, what are we seeing in the markets today? Why don't you kick us off with a little roundup of what we've seen in the last week since the last time we talked to our listeners and uh, what we're seeing in the markets today? Yeah, so markets have been pretty quiet. Um, then again, we're looking at a week-to-week basis here. So month-to-date and year-to-date for the various areas we look at uh, through last night, we're looking at the S&P 500 pretty much flat over the last week at down 1.5% on a month-to-date basis down 10.5% on a year-to-date basis. The Barclays Ag is down 25 basis points over previous week for a year-to-date uh, performance aggregate of positive 4%. Spot gold futures, or sorry, said that wrong. So uh, prompt month gold futures, uh, pretty much equivalent of spot, I believe, for the, for the gold market is up 70 basis points on the month, up 12% for the year. Copper futures, uh, as measured on LME front month futures, is up 1.2% on month-to-date basis, down 15% for the year. And WTI crude oil futures on the prompt month up about 37% for the month-to-date so far, and making it down still about 60% on the year. Yeah, Sam, can I jump on that too? Yeah. Because, uh, what's interesting about the S&P 500 is, is two things that I've noticed is one is, um, you know, we, we look at a lot of technical analysis and things for thinking about trade location, the likes, and the 60% just reminded me on WTI being down. It's kind of a Fibonacci uh, type of number, not exactly, but um, in the ballpark of that. But if you look at the Fibonacci retracements on the S&P 500 and you, you uh, calculate them based on the last low, uh, what you see is that we've kind of hit this double top at this last uh, fi- fi- critical Fibonacci level, which is roughly like 29.25 on the S&P or so. And so we've kind of breached through that, but we, we can't really break through that. We've kind of hit a double top there and we've hit some resistance in the last day or so. So I just wonder if some of this is the exhaustion out there. I've read a lot of articles uh, pointing to, you know, the prevalence of the apps out there, right? The various, you know, like the Robin Hoods and and these uh, Webulls and stuff where people are trading retail accounts in very small size. And look, and what's nice about the Robinhood app is you get data from it. Um, at least they publish some data out there about holdings from their users. And we've seen a huge increase in, in the retail community for one of the first times in seeing these pullbacks. So one, I find that kind of interesting that you've had these this kind of retail-ish type of push, obviously, 
an aggregate that hasn't moved the market significantly, but also hitting these critical kind of Fibonacci retracements. And then we look at, um, you know, there's some research going around, you know, people talk about the fangs. Um, and if you took out the, I think it's the fang with the M in it now too. So you had Microsoft into that mix. And so uh, if you extract those six stocks from the S&P 500, uh, what, and again, you know, that, that's, that's not the market, but understanding that just pulling out these six stocks, if you graph the performance of that, look at the earnings, it looks like the rest of the world. And so um, I read an article recently that saying, you know, the U.S. exceptionalism is really these six stocks when it comes to the stock market. It's not really a broad-based market. So just that as we think about this, the recovery, listen to Powell speak. I'm sure we'll jump into that in a minute. Uh, but uh, today, uh, as we think about things, you know, maybe the things that we see that are underneath the surface that are represented by some of these broad based indices are giving a different story out there. So just want to point that out as we talk about the uh, the market levels today. Yeah, and it, it does. It definitely bears mentioning, too. And, you know, it's like you've talked about uh, well, I was going to say on the desk, but on our virtual desks before, it's just almost like it's a, in some of these markets, too. It's just a Rip Van Winkle story where as if someone were to have woken up uh, in the last month or so or, you know, through through April or even through portions of May, it's it just seems like it's completely divergent from the market performance is completely divergent from what we've seen in the underlying economic data, which we'll hit in a little while here. But uh Things seem yeah, to be and for those who aren't familiar with the the Riff Winkle story is, you know, like what I'm saying there is that if you went to sleep, you know, towards the end of uh, February, in a lot of these markets, you'd wake up and realize, you know, not think really a lot has happened. You wouldn't see these massive, um, you know, data prints that we're seeing the macroeconomic front. So that's the idea that that we've been talking about. That um, you know what it looks like is more of a story of that the, there's there's just this temporary dislocation, there's a rebound. So before we front run the economic data, I'll let you cover that recap too. Yeah, so moving on to sovereign yields on the 10-year point of the curve, we have pretty much an unch situation uh, across treasuries at uh, 67 basis points through last night, the German 10-year boomed at minus 50 bips, and guess what, JGB still pegged at zero effectively. So. On cash spreads, when we look across different uh, portions of the fixed income market on IG, uh, it looks like they got a little bit wider by about five to five to ten basis points uh, to sit right around 205. High yield cash pays are right around 750 basis points. Um, those are a little bit tighter by about 10 basis points, and EM is tighter by 20 basis points to end out uh, this week at uh, 470. And those are spreads, right? Those aren't spreads. Yet. That's right. The, uh, cash spreads. Yeah, got it. So on the economic roundup, what we've seen since our last podcast is for initial jobless claims. Unfortunately, we had another uh, three million plus individuals filing uh, over last week to bring the the total over thirty million now, or sorry, thirty three million now over. Uh, the the last seven weeks in total. We also saw a pickup in con continuing jobless claims as that kind of that transition rate uh, starts to to catch up. Uh, initially, there was a lag in terms of uh, the overwhelming number of people filing on the initial basis uh, and then seeing a lag in the continu continuing claims, but that seems to have caught up now. So again, over 22 million now on a continuing basis for, for receiving unemployment insurance. Uh, last week, we also had the non-farm payrolls from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, with 
over 20 million people uh, losing their jobs uh, as accounted by the payrolls with an unemployment rate of 14.7. So just under 15%. So definitely a local high. I think the highest it touched, if I recall correctly, in the global financial crisis was just over 10%. Yeah, but uh, Sam, let's point, let's let's talk about that number real quick too, because in the BLS, um, during because remember, these are survey data, and so when you look through that, what you see is that there's still people in there that are considered employed, um, but they're just not showing up to work right now. Um, so I, it's, it's a small caveat, but it's just the way the, the survey's been structured. So the BLS uh, did put out, the Bureau of Labor Statistics put out this um, uh, kind of footnote on that number and said, hey, we didn't want to change our methodology or be viewed as, as changing that. So there's a lot of these folks which are deemed employed currently However, um, they're just temporarily not showing up for work. And I was using the air quotes when I said that temporarily. And so they're, they're, the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out another number, which we colloquially refer to as the U6 unemployment rate. And it's just the, the tables that, are, that report this data. So the U3 is the one that we use as the official unemployment rate these days. But the U6 includes marginally attached folks to the workforce. And so when you talk about marginally attached, uh, these are people who are temporarily unemployed or that have not been able to look for a job but still desire one or they're underemployed as well. And so when you look at that a marginally attached rate and put that with the unemployment rate, the U6 number is 22.8%. And I think you, you've heard me talk about a few times in, in, our, in our investment meetings that as we think about in our macro meetings is that when we look at the number, I think the U6 is more representative of where the economy is right now. And because of the just the nuance of the of the survey, as well as just folks that are trying to scrape by and say by that there's a lot of underemployment too in these areas. And so if you look at that differential, the 80% spread between the U3 and the U6 number is somewhat consistent with where we saw the peak um, in the last uh, in the last uh, recession during 2008, uh, the, the the spread being the differential between the U3 and the U6. So I think it merits watching both of those at this point in time, especially as the 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 data has come out very quickly. The response and the unemployment rate spiked very quickly. I think the U6 is a, is a number to really watch as well. And I did see that um, out there today that Goldman put out a new forecast saying that the unemployment rate may touch 35% before it rebounds. And again, not to look at how uh, grossly just disappointing those numbers are and how bad it is for the overall economy, it's a function about how we snap back at this point. And I listened to Mr. Powell speak this morning, um, and he was really focused on this, this idea of trying to get employment back in line once we get this reset uh get get through this recession but uh i didn't hear from him this morning that he thought this was going to be a v-shaped recovery uh in any capacity and so i think it does warrant mentioning that you know you need to look at all of these kind of data sets right now because again it's, it's a sparse data it's been a quick decline and we need to make sure that we stay on top of it no absolutely and i think especially given the ferocity of the decline in you know, the, the number of people um, employed or, or on payroll uh, to distinct things, It's there, there's bound to be some aberrations and it's always important to look through the data at times to really understand the methodology behind it. I mean, what you just noticed for the payrolls data is, which I think you're referring to, also showed up uh, within the employment data as well, because uh, if you look at the, dig through the numbers for that unemployment rate, there was a 22% I'm sorry, 22 million decline in the number of employed persons 
uh, underlying that unemployment rate, but there is also a huge dropout, whereas typically when someone drops out of the employment, um, um, the employed column, they, they carry over into the unemployed column. What we saw in this last month's print was there is about, uh, I want to say around 9,000 uh, by the official numbers, but um, there's around 9,000 individuals, sorry, 9 million individuals that dropped out of the employment, bypassed the unemployment column, and went straight out of the labor force entirely, where they basically were indicating that they're not employed, they're not looking for a job, and they're not interested in a job. So they just kind of threw up their hands and gave up. Part of that's probably, you know, early retirement, and others are just probably fed up. Uh, with with what they've been seeing and just you know just have been disenchanted or as you see as you said kind of discouraged you know well also if you look at it too you know something we'd been looking at for a long time was the uh, the wage data right average hourly wages and and looking for that as some signs of perhaps inflation as you know we talk about the Phillips curve we've had many economists on talking about the relationship between unemployment and inflation I'm sorry uh, the wage growth and the inflation out there and so what we've seen is that in, in this data now that the average uh, hourly earnings had spiked significantly so this is one of those kind of aberrations where I think what's happened is what you've seen is you've lost in the workforce at least the survey you've lost some of the lower paying jobs so it looks like when you compare the data set it, it's a it's a it's not the same cohort right and so when you look at these numbers, it looks like average hourly earnings went up like almost 7% or so uh, yeah. over on yeah. a year-over-year -year basis. And so obviously that's, that's not the case that there's this very strong economy. So uh, I think it, it, does, um, it, it does merit the look through as you're talking about. And just uh, you have to dig through some of this data to really get what the full picture is. Yeah, no, absolutely. So. Um, you, know, you talked about average hourly earnings growth, uh, something that we also look for in terms of um, increase uh, typically for, for prices is CPI, consumer price indices. And what we saw on a headline and bo uh, both a headline and a core basis on a month of month basis, month over month basis, they're both negative while still positive on a year. But on the CPI core month over month, it was down 40 basis points uh, on that. On that and that, that has some merit in history because that is the worst month over month decline since in the post World War II ever. Uh, sorry, the post World War II era um, since we've been measuring that data set that uh, you had that negative 40 basis points or so in core. Typically, core doesn't really print negative numbers, but a lot of that probably is from the consumption side of the equation. Uh, but that it is, you know, we you hear this unprecedented uh, phrase being used and historic. Um, there's really the, those are the best words to really describe a lot of the macroeconomic data we're seeing today. Yeah, and unfortunately, I, I suspect that there's more of that to come on the on the negative shock side. So hopefully, if if and when the the recovery happens, we'll hear some uh, unprecedented in front of uh, positive numbers uh, next time. So yeah, we'll see. Uh, so the Fed balance sheet, let's wind up, uh, close it off with that. The Fed balance sheet, it looks like the Fed uh, has been slowing their pace. Um, they're still at, on a round basis, 6.7 trillion, uh, meaning uh, translating to just uh, over 70 million uh, over the past week. So they'd have like slowed billion, down considerably. Uh, you're losing your 70 billion, points. sorry. Yeah, yeah, millions, billions, and trillions. It's Correct. funny how we use these words and, and they mean a lot, right? <laughs> That's right. I mean, just like uh, the positive and negative sign is important to add in front of everything. Now, so. <laughs> exactly. So also on top of that, um, I did, uh, you know, uh, Powell this morning was questioned directly uh, about his, the, the 
committee's view as well as his view on negative interest rate policy. And he was pretty staunch today about saying that, um, you know, they're not considering negative interest rates. And I've seen some economists subsequent to this say, well, he was talking about the current, maybe in the future, uh, because we did see some uh, kind of funkiness in some of the Fed future, Fed fund futures market and uh, looking at some of those rates where it was pricing a negative rate at some point next year. Um, people have chalked that up to liquidity and a small, um, really small market of people who traffic in those securities. But um, you know, it's something to keep on the radar screen, too. Is the market going to force the Fed's hand? Uh, I did I did find it pretty interesting, though, that uh, Powell did go out of his way to say that all and he, and he stressed it. And he even said it's not very often you get to say it. You don't get to say all, but all of the FOMC participants judge that negative interest rate policy is not an effective tool. Now, he didn't say at the stage and at the future, uh, but I did. You know, he is very staunch and adamant right now about focusing on we're going to use QE, we're using these liquidity facilities, and we're not going to try to pursue negative interest rates. Um, so anyway, we'll have to continue to monitor that. But I think it is it is very uh, interesting that the market started to give a little bit of negative interest rate pricing on the front of the curve. Yeah, just like most things, I guess, uh, with that, time will tell to see how yeah. much he's able to, to toe that line. Um, let's move into hey, the policy. Sam, before, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Sam, one more thing before. Um, there was also something in Congress, I think, yesterday uh, that the House was trying to pass a bill. Do you have any update on that? Yeah, so the policy roundup for this week um, is that the House put forth a stimulus plan that they dubbed the HEROES Act. That's the, uh, you gotta wonder, I mean, do they come up with the acronym first and then try to, to back their way into it? Or do they come up with the actual name of, the full name of, of the act and then put an acronym? Oh, it's got, it, this it's one got has to be backed into, this one has Correct. to be. Uh, maybe you can let them know what, it, what it's called. Yeah, so once again, it's called the HEROES Act, um, Health and Economic Recovery Omnibus Emergency Solutions Act. Yeah, I think that word omnibus inserted there is it's simply to make it be heroes, right? Correct. Correct. I, I, Harry's, I can't see that word being there from the beginning. Yeah, I think Harry's is a Greek god. There's something in mythology. I can't remember, but I don't remember it being a positive thing. So heroes over Harry's, I think, would be a, a better a better acronym for sure. So let's just throw that omnibus in there. Um, and that's for a, a total of $3 trillion. Uh, looking through it, it seems like a lot of it is just um, – refilling the coffers for existing uh, portions of the previous CARES Act. Um, so what we've seen here is a, a, tr a trillion dollars to state and lo local governments, 200 billion earmarked to a new category, essential worker hazard pay, an additional $75 billion to testing, but this time they're going to add on contact tracing as well as isolation provisions. There's going to be an additional round of direct payments, if you recall that, of initially, or it is still, and initially it was $1,200 per person, but now they've raised the, the potential maximum per household to $6,000. And then this one, Mr. Mayberry pointed out, which was uh, helpful because it was somewhat buried in the language of, I believe it was a 186-page document, which... Seems like a lot, but then if it's coming out of Congress, it actually seems kind of light at 186 pages. So what they did was they removed the $10,000 cap on the state and local taxes, the SALT taxes, for two years, uh, for the years of 2020 and 21, and then no real provision for what's going to happen after that. Because I believe the original sunset on the Jobs Act, back, what was it called? Uh, the, the, let's just call it the Jobs Act. Uh, TJCA, I think it was. It didn't have a good acronym. 
yeah, that doesn't that doesn't flow as well. But back in 2017 for the original sunset of 2025. So we'll see what uh, happens there. I, I, I suspect that this will not pass in its entirety, if at all, through uh, the Senate, which is supposed to go to vote later this week. If I yeah, I think I saw some headlines that the uh, that McConnell and the Senate were saying it was DOA, which doesn't shock me with that that salt provision in there. So, Sam, I, I don't know if you forgot, but we have a guest on this week. Um, maybe we should uh, transition to him and see kind of his views on the markets. I think so. I think okay. so. Yeah. So our guest is uh, Joe Mezik, um, who works on our uh, investment team for CLOs. Um, He's an analyst in that sector. He trades the sector, and uh, he's very well versed in the CLO market. You can—he's uh, a repeat guest. Uh, so if you want to hear kind of the inner workings of the CLO market, you can refer back to our original interview of Joe uh, on the Sherman Show. Uh, however, um, I, instead of uh, defining all the acronyms and getting into that, we'll use that as the primer. If you need to do that, you can pause this one, go pick up Joe Mezik's. Uh, old uh, old album out there on the Sherman Show. <laughs> Listen to that. Get get versed in some of the market because we're gonna use some of that jargon today. But Joe, uh, welcome uh, back to the Sherman Show. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having me back. Uh, it's good to be back. All right, great. Well, um, you're you're dialing in here from your bunker and an undisclosed location right now, um, trading the CLO market. So why don't you give us an update on uh, how the CLO market has performed on a year-to-date basis. And so uh, for those that uh, just uh, picked up from the um, uh, listening to the previous podcast, CLOs are collateralized loan obligations. It's a securitized market that, that the underlying assets tend to be bank loans uh, or loans in the marketplace. So um, why don't you give us an update, Joe, on what you've seen in the market, starting with the beginning of the year, walk us through um, what happened in March and then where we are today. Uh, yeah, so the CLO market started the year off uh, quite strong. I would say uh, January and, and February spreads were issuance was uh, you know was was strong, and then with the you know pandemic creating a lot of uncertainty on a macroeconomic level, there was kind of kind of two things that happened in in March. Uh, the first was. Uh, investors started ramping up their expectations for for loan defaults because of the economy being closed and, and you know a lot of the uh, data that uh, we we talked about on the on the first part of the show augurs for you know increased corporate defaults in the future. So you know when you're looking at CLOs and you think defaults are going to increase in the future, you have to lower your prices. And uh, the second thing that that happened in March is there was there was a uh, there was a, a liquidity issue, um, you know, where kind of everyone was was rushing for the exits. At at the same time, it was it was driven uh, mostly by, you know, margin mortgage REIT investors uh, needing to you know getting margin calls and, and and being forced to unwind some positions, which put pressure uh, across the entire you know fixed income. Uh, spectrum and and CLOs were not spared. Um, yes, the CLO, particularly at the the, cop, the top of the the capital structure, which are CLO triple A's, are very well enhanced. Uh, we I call them risk remote, triple A rated, and a lot of uh, investors had had kind of invested in in triple A's. There was a narrative out there that triple A CLOs were enhanced cash, where 
they're liquid. Um, they're not, not going to move down in price very much, even even in a um, you know in a bear market. And you'll be able to liquidate them uh, when when you need to. And that that did not that uh, thesis or narrative was was proven wrong. Um, kind of that that middle that middle week of March seventeenth there. Um, there was a liquidity crunch. There was a, a rush for the exits, and and uh, there was more uh, sellers than there, than there were buyers. So even at the top of the capital structure, um, you know, we saw kind of cert certain AAA bonds were, were down over over ten points in trading in the eighties, and that continued to uh, you know flow flow through the further you go down in the capital structure where you know, mezzanine CLO bonds were, uh, depending on what rating category, 10 points to, to you know, 50 points or more. Uh, CLO equity, which is the riskiest part of the, of the capital structure, that market almost just totally closed from a, from a secondary uh, perspective. You could see you know, bid-ass spreads, 10, 20 points, um, not a lot of, not a lot of uh, trading uh, going on there. And then um, I think I think I can say that the, the Fed stepped in a, a combination of, of the Fed stepping in and uh, market participants starting to price in um, a possibility that the economy uh, will reopen and that there will be a recovery. Uh, I think there was a, a narrative shift there that was helped by the Fed. Uh, Kind of around that that uh, that March 24th period, where the the Fed announced a couple of uh, programs that were going to uh, buy corporate bonds, and that really uh, supported the market. There was a narrative shift from we got to flatten the curve, we have to close things down, flatten the curve, and then you started seeing you know certain parts of the country. Uh, protests breaking out, saying you know, we need to reopen the economy, and, and the narrative kind of changed from flattening the curve to how are we going to get uh, the economy open? And I don't think we have a good answer to that question, and that's something that we're still uh, working through now. But it did create a bottom in risk asset prices, um, you know, across across the bond markets uh, and equity. So since then. Um, you know, the market has been one way straight up. Uh, it's either been some days you come in and it feels like a like what I would describe as a risk grab where, you know, you can't bid bonds quick enough as, as prices keep uh, moving higher. And then other days it seems like a uh, kind of a, a, a slow grind tighter. But it has been a, a, a one way market since, you know, that that um, March March 24th period. It's interesting you say that too, Joe, because when you look at the markets, you know, you, you see that the stock market, if you use something like the S&P 500, and I'm not going to use the S&P 494 as I was referring to earlier, <laughs> um, but if you look at that, there, there's been some choppiness there. Um, you know, if you look at the other parts of the structure, much has been choppiness. So we started with a one-way direction or a one-way market, as you described. It was monotonically decreasing um, through kind of that March 23rd type of area. And then we started to see certain markets had this monotonically increasing um, version of price and, and return once again, um, as you described in the CLO market. And what I see is really that the investment grade corporate market, at least through April 9th, 
right? And the reason I, I, I flag April 9th was that was the uh, announcement of, of larger scales or upsizing some of these liquidity facilities from the Fed. And through that period, we saw corporate bonds and uh, some, you know, some parts of the high yield market, some parts of the bank loan market. And as you'd mentioned, triple A CLOs uh, really just uh, exhibit this uh, monotonically increasing price. And so um, how do you think about correlation between your market or the way the CLO market behaves to other parts of the, say, the risk markets or corporate markets out there? Because a lot of our listeners don't buy CLOs directly. Mm -hmm. They may own them through their funds and, and through some of their exposures. However, um, how do you think about that and how your market should behave? And we can talk about the top of the capital stack versus kind of the mezzanine parts as you described earlier. Uh, yes. So there is a, uh, a strong correlation uh, between CLOs and their, their kind of corporate equivalents, which makes sense because you know, CLOs are securitization of corporate, uh, corporate debt. So you know, they, they should be correlated to the underlying assets. If you look at uh, kind of a, a weekly correlation this year between CLOs, AAA spreads, and investment grade corporate spreads, the correlation um, is, is very close to one. It's, it's about you know, 0.96 or 0.97. And as you go further down in the capital structure, more mezzanine uh, CLO tranches, triple Bs and double Bs, and those are uh, more correlated with leverage credits, such as you know, high, high yield bonds and and leverage loans. And, and again, if you look at the, the correlation there is very, very high, uh, about, about 0.9, if you look at the correlation between CLO, MES, and, and loans and high yield. So that, you know, that April 9th, that Thursday that you were talking about, that was, uh, I believe, the best day in, in uh, definitely since a crisis in, in uh, high yield index, uh, JNK, the high yield ETF that what we like to talk about was up uh, 7%. Um, and that that flowed through into the CLO market. That definitely was that was a day that was described as a risk grab in uh, in the CLO market. And how is how's the market behaved since then? Because when I look at um, if you look at some of those ETFs or indices out there, um, those seem to be the highs in the market, even in the investment grade side, at least on a price basis. You know, you could argue that some of the AAAs have done better, like little segments of the market, but. When I look at investment grade, that seems to be the high print um, mm -hmm. since the, the fall down. Uh, you talk about high yield. The high print was there, and we're below those levels today. Uh, mm -hmm. Loans, same thing. How about the CLO market? Um, how has that behaved you know, since, let's say, April 9th, where the new bazooka came out from the Fed? Yeah, I would, I would say um, you know, since April 9th, it's, it's been more of a, uh, a, a grind tighter. What, what happened with particularly at the at the bottom of the of the capital structure there was such a there was such a dislocation um, in the middle of, of March where you know triple B double B CLOs trading 30 50 cents on the on the dollar in some scenarios you know liquidity was very poor wide bid ass no one really wanted to look at the bonds or buy the bonds but then if you give investors time to be like to be able to to dig in, to these structures and dig into the loan market and say, all right, I, th I think these loans are going to default. And once you, you know, use those, those, uh, those assumptions and, and, and run bonds, uh, you can find, or, or we have been finding opportunities to, to buy bonds at discounted levels that you ultimately 
think um, will be paid back at, 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 at par. Um, so those are opportunities that uh, once you take the time to dig into the collateral and dig into the structures, you're able to find in, in, in the CLO market. Um, and, and that's why I would, I would describe it kind of grind tighter uh, in CLOs um, since April 9th, maybe, as, maybe with a, a bit of a lag uh, com compared to, to particularly high yields because that, that market usually uh, reacts quicker. But there, there has been uh, you know, high, higher prices in CLOs since April 9th. Well, you, you mentioned the lag, and I think that securitized markets kind of lagged on both sides. They lagged first to the downside a little bit as, um, you know, it, it took another week or two before the corp, uh, after the corporate market started to climb before you really started to see some of those bigger declines. You mentioned the REIT deleveraging and, and having impacts there. Uh, but, you know, when you look across the marketplace, you talk about the CLO structure, and I know that's something you emphasized on our last podcast and something that's very important. Uh, when you're buying, um, you know, below AAA rated tranches, if you if you think about the scenarios where you start to get losses, let's say on what are currently the investment grade tranches, the triple B tranches, mm -hmm. could you talk about what type of scenario it would take for those tranches? Again, broadly speaking, not not deal specific, to start mm -hmm. to take losses. Like, what do the default rates need to look like? And the reason I'm I'm bringing this question up, I'm leading down the path, is that. There's a lot of concern about the covenants and the underwriting standards within the loan market. Um, mm -hmm. So we'll get to that in a second. But can you talk about what type of scenario it would take for you to start to see um, true losses or impairment of the collateral uh, to get to the levels where these triple B's, let's say, in general, would take losses? Uh, yes. So uh, generically speaking, you can say a, a triple B is the you know, lowest uh, investment grade rated CLO tranche has about 12.5% um, credit enhancement. And so you would need to so see what that, 12... What does that mean, just to remind folks, what does credit enhancement mean? That means that um, there's, you, there's something called over-collateralization, where you have more uh, assets than you do uh, liabilities. If you think of kind of like a, like a, a balance sheet, you have um, $100 of assets that is collateralized by only... In this scenario, you know, eighty-seven and a half dollars of uh, bonds. So you can take a twelve and a half point loss on your assets before it starts. Uh, you start eating into your uh, or taking a loss on, on your bond. Okay, so let, let's distinguish there too, because you're talking about a twelve and a half percent loss. Does that mean a twelve and a half percent default rate? No, it does not. It means a twelve and a half percent net loss rate. So historically. Uh, you know, recovery rates in the loan market have been approximately 70%. Um, for, there's uh, many reasons that uh, we think uh, recoveries will be lower in, in this environment. So if, if you kind of, again, speaking generically, a 50% recovery rate um, and you need 12.5% loss to take a loss on your tranche, that means that, that uh, total default rates would need to be 25% um, until you uh, start thinking about taking a loss on an investment grade CLO. But that, that, um, that doesn't take into account a key feature of CLOs, which is one of the reasons CLOs are, you know, have, have been popular and, and performed very well throughout the last crisis. And, and that is that uh, CLOs 
have reinvestment periods and they're actively managed uh, pools of loans. So what what happens in market dislocations like this, where you know in in March I didn't, I didn't mention what happened in the loan market, but the the, the loan market uh, there's a LSTA loan index and and it was in the high 90s. Um, March and April, and then it, it moved down to, to 76 at its at its bottom um, around March March 20th, and has since recovered about 10 points, trading around 87 now. So what happens uh, when loan prices are are uh, are discounted, such as they are now? Uh, CLO managers can actively manage the pool and and do something uh, that's that's referred to as as building par. So if if the CLO manager gets gets cash in, you know, like like a loan prepays, uh, which did happen, you know, even even in uh, in March and April, they can take that cash that they've uh, you know got gotten paid back at par and buy loans that are trading, you know, in the in the 80s or in the 90s. So that that builds additional uh, cushion in the deals and is is one of the reasons um, that CLOs performed very well. Uh, during the last crisis, that the ability that they have to uh, either either trade the portfolio to raise cash or get prepays in and then invest them uh, at at lower dollar prices and and higher spreads. That that kind of reinvestment optionality that is that is uh, you know relatively unique across structured products to to CLOs um, is is very important in markets like this. Yeah, and so you mentioned that, and so let's let's talk about the underlying loan market for a second. And if you look at kind of forecast rates for defaults this year, um, I've seen estimates in the loan and high yield space to be you know somewhere between ten to fifteen percent. And these were um, these estimates are still kind of in in the depths of the of the crisis that we were mired in a couple months ago. And mm-hmm. so, uh, how are you thinking about that? I mean. Typically, when you talk about a loss rate, we talk about a constant defaults so or like assuming that it's a constant default rate. But when you when you're running the CLOs and, and looking for value in the bonds that you're buying today, how do you think about that default curve? Is is it front loaded uh, given the crisis now um, and it smooths out over time? Like what are some of the kind of scenarios mm-hmm. that you can run um, where they get you this comfort level that you're describing about the CLO market today where the prices mm-hmm. are? Yeah, so uh, we believe that the the default curve will um, be front loaded, like you said. I think for the for the next you know one to two years, we've already seen an uptick uptick in the in the in the default rate, um, and it's 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 very plausible that that defaults uh, reach reach you know double digits, like you were talking about, fifteen uh, percent. Uh, maybe that's more of a, a bond. It's possible in loans, but it feels like more of a uh, bond type uh, default rate, but for the for the next two years, we can see uh, elevated defaults, and then as the economy begins to recover, um, default rate will, will will start going down. I think a couple of uh, other other you know aspects of the of the, the kind of default environment that we think about are it's not uh, you know it's not one size fits all, particularly in a, a market like this and, and you know when we run bonds we are running individual uh default scenarios sometimes you know on a on a loan to loan um level but certainly by industries so you know industries that have been very uh, affected uh by this pandemic such as energy such as retail hospitality uh leisure uh in those scenarios the 
the default rate um, will be you know, in some cases significantly higher than that, than the 10 to 15% uh, that you mentioned. Another uh, interesting thing to think about and something that we, we kind of think about when it comes to defaults is because of these, uh, you know, the, the Fed programs uh, that, that have been announced, the, the capital markets are, are still open. Uh, you know, and if you look at the investment credit, credit market, uh, March was the, the highest year, it's the highest month of issuance ever. And then April topped it. April was the, the highest month of issuance ever. Uh, the, the high yield yeah, box. We're running yeah. at, I think the investment grade market, if you extrapolate, it's running at like a $1.8 trillion gross issuance this year, which um, we, we probably won't contain this trend. Um, but we've been hearing is it seems like every day there's 10 new IG deals a day. For some reason, the market can only handle 10 right now. But mm -hmm. the, the size of those deals have been massive, as you, as you mentioned. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a I lot think the, of. Actually, to put some of that in the context, too, I mean, if you're talking about that $1.8 trillion. If we continue at this rate for the year, I mean, the IG market, I think around the global financial crisis was maybe around two and a half trillion. It grew to about six, six trillion plus over the course of the next 10 years. So you can just you can just contextualize the pace that we're seeing in these last few months versus the last 10 years. And it's pretty incredible. Well, in yeah. all fairness, before we get the hate email on that, is that this is gross issuance. You're talking about net issuance sure. there. So, yeah. um, you know, but the hate general, it's, a lot of these aren't being paid <laughs> down. The whole point is, is that they need liquidity. So, yeah. And, and that has, uh, you know, also also uh, come into the, the high yield bond market where now, you know, we are seeing companies even in in distressed uh, industries such as you know, AMC Entertainment, uh, Marriott, they're able to access the bond market. And in some cases, they're actually uh, issuing bonds to take out their, their loans um, or just provide uh, further liquidity, which is, which is, which is positive. Uh, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's positive in the, in the sense that there will be liquidity. So good companies, you know, I saw Uber is a good example. Just this morning, they announced that they were Issuing issuing a bond. Obviously, Uber's main business has been you know, decimated by by this pandemic. But uh, I don't think anyone thinks Uber's gonna 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 go away. And they you know they have a they have a good business that has a, has a reason to exist um, in the future. And because of capital markets being open and relatively uh, generous right now, I think talking that that bond was around you know, seven percent, which to me is not very punitive when in, when you know, some of the economic data we, we talked about uh, uh, previously. So good companies uh, will have liquidity to be able to, to ride out this pandemic. The, the, the kind of other edge of the sword that I was talking about is, you know, if, if, if a bad company, I don't know if, I don't want to pick on any companies, but maybe a, a cruise liner, uh, you know, has been able to, to get financing and, if it turns out that the, they're actually just not a solvent company, it's not a liquidity issue, it's a, it's a solvency company, then all that you've done is you put extra debt on a company that wasn't going to make it anyway. And you, you start getting into scenarios where you have, you know, either kind of zombie companies or um, much lower uh, recovery rates as companies put on too much debt and, and can't grow their way out of it. So that's, that's uh, you know, 
the capital markets being open and relatively generous right now is definitely going to um, play a role in in the in the shape of the default curve. I think in the, in the last crisis, 2009 defaults spiked up very high. Part of that was that capital markets were not open in the in the same way that they are now. So a lot of these companies had no choice. But but now, even if you're you know a, a casino, a hotel, a, a cruise cruise line operator. There are uh, financing, you know, there are financing options out there for you. They may not be at the best terms, but um, it's better than it's better than uh, defaulting. And that's that's also similar to, uh, I believe you mentioned the the lack of uh, covenants in the in the loan market. So because uh, most loans now are covenant light, that also gives companies more time to to ride out a, a you know a potential recession, depending on the on the length of that recession. Yeah, so I, I like the phrase you use. You, you talked about, you know, really what we're, you're talking about is liquidity, not solvency, right? And mm-hmm. so it reminds me of the old phrase that you can't borrow your way to prosperity. But inherently, the the loans in these markets, because most of them are below investment grade, they're highly levered companies. Mm-hmm. And this is an example where, you know, the Fed can solve liquidity problems, but unless they're going to actually step in and guarantee these markets, they can't solve the solvency issue, right? And so, you know, when you look at what's happened at the, over the last two months or so, and we, we've talked about the haves and the have-nots, and we've had some of, uh, some of your colleagues on from the securitized space, um, Andrew, and we've had Ken on as well, talking about the ABS market, the RMBS market, and again, these things being kind of more liquidity versus solvency. Um, how do you think that the market is responding now? Uh, two months ago, it was the liquidity problem. Uh, the Fed tried to step in with lowering rates. They stepped in with their asset purchases through QE. Then they announced these liquidity facilities. Um, in your viewpoint right now, um, has, the, has the liquidity issue been addressed and the reason for uh, continued elevated spreads is a solvency issue? Or is there still a liquidity problem in the markets? Or has the Fed kind of solved part of that? with the announcement of a lot of these programs? I think that this, the Fed has solved, I, I guess I'm going to give a little bit of a political answer. I think it's it's, it's both. The Fed has solved um, part of the liquidity problem. I think uh, with what happened in, in March and how, you know, just the velocity of that 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 downward move, uh, I think a lot of the, you know, what, what kind of we refer to as, as weak hands or, or you know, Levered, levered buyers, kind of fast money type accounts that were buying uh, CLOs and, and kind of risky corporate credit, they were forced to sell in, in March, and that that kind of flushed a lot of the the leveraged buyers out of the the system. So now people are are spending a lot more time focusing on fundamentals, which which I think is uh, healthy for the market, and I think spreads are wider now because fundamentals have have uh, deteriorated. And I, I think, you know, you, we're seeing, you know, even within the market, people are doing, uh, I think, a good job of you know, digging into into structures, looking at the collateral and uh, deciding how much is a bond worth. We'll, we'll see, you know, there's one other thing that's going on in the sealed market is there's, there's wide dispersion, even uh, within uh, kind of rating agencies. So it's kind of like not, you know, not all triple B CLOs, are created equal. There could be, you know, 10, 20 point differences in a, the way that a, a clean triple B would trade versus a 
yeah, Triple P that's on downgrade watch and has a lot of exposure to a lot of a lot of troubled names. So, um, you know, because of because people taking a different fundamental view on the default outlook, prices prices are lower, spreads are wider as they should be. And there was also you know a massive dislocation in March that has not fully reversed yet. Uh, so we're seeing kind of opportunities to to pick through the the rubble and and find things that we like. It's 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 a uh, it's a hard time. It's a busy time to to you know be a bond trader and be looking at all this stuff. But it's it's uh, it's interesting. You know, <laughs> it reminds me why yeah. why you do this job. It it, can, it, yeah. it has its its pluses too. It can be fun. Yeah, right. Hey Joe, you actually that that reminds me too. When we had you on the last podcast, you talked about your experience uh, during the global financial crisis and how it left you kind of uh, questioning your your role in the industry. How is uh, the current crisis right now compared to to your feelings back then and what you uh, saw back then? Yeah, I mean, I just I just think you know this has been um, we're, we're we're working really hard for for our clients. Um, you know, like 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 I mentioned before, we don't. This this has been. You think you know you're working from home. Um, you don't have to go into the office. People can think you know you just sit around and watch. There was not even any sports to watch, but yeah, um, <laughs> I've I've been working you know harder honestly than than I have um, the you know b- before in my life, and this has just been it's been a it's it's been an opportunity. You know, it's not lost on us that that uh, you know people have trusted our trusted us with their money in volatile times and you know we're working working hard every day to to try to make the make the most out of it like i said you know we're seeing opportunities the market um is very busy and there's a lot of stuff that's changing uh, very quickly particularly um in that 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 march time period you know it's kind of like a a character building uh experience being able to kind of you know go through in the in, in the trenches of you know a tough period uh, like that. And now it's just, you know, keep, keep working hard and trying to, uh, find opportunities where they are. All right, Sam, we're going to remember that when it comes down to compensation time that Joe's been working <laughs> hard here as his plug for management. So, uh, I don't know if you guys colluded on that, that question answer, well, but there, uh, there's no, there's no distinction between work and home. You used to have a work and you used to have a home. And now it's <laughs> like your work is your home and your home is your work. So it's just like one big thing. Yeah, my commute is cut down from like 20 minutes to about um, about a minute and a half to walk up <laughs> to, to move around. But uh, but that being said, let's finish up with one more market question before we get into Sam's favorite part, too. Um, you know, we've heard a lot of these programs like TALF and, and CLOs being eligible, and there's a new announcement there. Um, how much do you think the Fed's liquidity facilities are kind of crowding your market? Because that's the other side of this. People are like, oh, okay, the, the markets have bounced back. Right. Like the stock markets retrace like 60 percent of its loss and IGs retrace like 90 plus percent. Um, and in, in the IG market, to me, that looks a little crowded from the Fed's behavior and then the buying of the ETFs and the like that's happening. So how do you feel that that's that's worked out in your market? Do you feel the, that by having these facilities, it's crowding your market or do you think it's just, you know, it's just a function of where we are in the cycle? I mean, there's not a huge part of the market that's eligible for some of these programs, but mm-hmm. I'm curious your thoughts about that, because that's the unintended consequence of all these QE and these programs is that you don't really have true price discovery. Right. Mm-hmm. That it becomes artificial, I think, is what Andrew Sue told us a few weeks ago is his view on markets. So wh- how do you think about that right now? And do you think the markets, you know, the, the, the CLO markets are fairly valued? 
Uh, yeah, that, that, that's a good question. Uh, I think, uh, you know, these Fed announcements provide uh, the, the, the signaling effect and kind of the impact effects of the Fed adding CLOs to TAL or doing these, these corporate bond purchases uh, have drastic uh, effects on the, on the market. Uh, when, when you drill down and, and look into what the actual, um, you know, announcement is and what the Fed will actually be doing in, in the CLO market, it's, it's not going to have uh, a material change, at least on, on kind of, you know, broadly syndicated uh, CLOs. Only, only AAAs are eligible for TALF and only static CLOs are eligible for TALF. For TALF. And just to give a quick kind of anecdote of, of how that market has been, you know, it's historically, uh, static CLOs priced tighter than than CLOs with longer reinvestment periods. And we saw a static CLO price earlier this year before the, the kind of pandemic volatility at 90 basis points over par. And the, the Fed financing cost for CLO AAAs is 150 basis points over par. So that that TALF leverage is is not going to be you know nearly enough to to restore the market to the sense of uh, of kind of if if you if you think that January and February were more normal you know normal times or that's what you know the Fed is trying to get us back to a period like that uh, TALF won't have the ability to to do that but what but what it does do is I think these you know the signaling effects and Powell even said it in one of uh, press conferences I was I was listening to, but the signaling effects of of all these programs um, are are real. And and you know when the Fed makes these announcements, uh, markets rally before people can even digest. You know you know put out a term sheet that's that's one page, and people have no you know no idea on what the details are, how it will actually work um, in 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 practice. But uh, markets respond. So I think the signaling and the indirect effects um, that the Fed is thinking of CLOs and includes CLOs in their program, even though, you know, what, what they will actually be doing will not have, will not have a, a material effect, I think is, is real. So it's more like there's, there's a, there's a backstop there, um, which I don't know. I, um, I don't think, yeah, we can, we can talk about what the Fed's role is, but it's, it's, I don't, I don't think the Fed's role is necessarily to, to prop up prices back to where they were in, in January, February, but in certain types, uh, certain situations, you know, a, a backstop can make sense to help, um, you know, the the proper functioning of of the economy and make make sure making sure a lot of these companies, um, you know, will have access to to liquidity so they can keep paying their employees and stay in business and, and, and things like that. All right, Joe, before we jump into the next part, is there any final thoughts you want to leave us with um, on the CLO market? Um, no, I think, like I said, we're, um, you know, there was a, a huge dislocation in March. Some of that has uh, reversed, but uh, yeah, I think things like that happen in, in markets and, and you can uh, kind of sort through the rubble, pick through the rubble and, and try to find bonds that you like with uh, understanding that, you know, we're, we're not out of the woods yet, but, um, you know, we think you can find good opportunities to buy, you know, par bonds at a discount. All right. Well, thanks for that. So before we let you go and uh, let you go back to your, uh, your day job, 
Uh, we got to go through Sam's favorite part of the show first. Yeah, Jill, that favorite part of the show is Sherman says. I'm going to offer a series of prompts alternating between Jeff Sherman and yourself, Jill Mezik. I'm going to start out uh, to which you will offer a top of mind response. You know what? Great. Let's try to keep this to one word since you guys are the ones doing it. So I'm going to start off with Sherman with Elon Musk. Actually, that was a statement. Elon Musk. It sounded like a question. Polarizing. Uber and Grubhub. Sustainable. Tax returns. That can go a lot of ways. Um, glad to not be filing them right now. Robin Hood trader. Good caller. Davy Day trader. Insane. Food price inflation. Temporary. Average hourly earnings. Distorted. Sweden and the COVID-19 experience. Ooh. Um, interesting. Return of the Trade War. I'm trying to think of the artist that sang that song, Return of the Mac, and I can't come up with it. Uh, mm. You know it. You know it loud. Who's the guy? <laughs> Morrison. It's Mac Morrison. Yeah. Joe Montana. Notre Dame. Sherman. He's Niner, man. Best. Uh, <laughs> one of the best Niners ever. Him and Jerry Rice. You know. All right, and that closes out that portion of uh, Sherman Says. Yeah. All right, well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Joe, thanks for uh, jumping back on and elucidating us on the uh, inner workings of the CLO market. We appreciate your comments and, and insights there. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, and for those of you out there, remember, you can follow us on the Twitter. Our handle is at Sherman Show Pod. Uh, we'll put some charts up uh, uh, substantiating the, the facts that uh, Mr. Mezik talked about today. Uh, we'll put some more thoughts out there as well. And as we continue to work from home, which um, it sounds like the L.A. health officials are saying it's going to be at least another few more months. Um, we'll continue to crank these things out on a weekly basis as long as you guys find them interesting. So uh, feedback, if you want to send us an email, shermanshow at doubleline.com. And again, you can uh, you can follow us on Twitter at shermanshowpod. Uh, on the Twitter. So again, thanks for listening and we'll be back next week with some more uh, insights from the double line team. Thanks again, Joe. audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. 
DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 Double Line Capital.